Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Boy, it's good on a day like uh, September 11th on the 15th anniversary to, to rest in the sufficiency of Scripture. You know what I mean? That's where it's grateful that I open up the Word of God and I teach what's in here. I wonder as a topical type preacher if I had to come up with something to say or how um, uh, ill-prepared I would be. But I rest in the sufficiency of Scripture. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12. We're just continuing with the series in the Gospel of Mark, I've been preaching through Mark, and today I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 12. I want to give you a little bit of background, and then just, just dive right in about what the Lord would have to say to us today from His Word. We are in the midst of Holy Week in this particular passage in Mark 12. Some people call it Holy Week or the Passion Week. It's the last week of Jesus' ministry. He's arrived in Jerusalem, and now uh, the next thing will be the Last Supper, you know, Good Friday, the crucifixion, and then Easter Sunday, the resurrection. The thing that struck me in reading, and maybe you've been the same way, uh, if you think about, you know, last spring, or you're looking forward maybe to next spring, you're thinking about uh, Holy Week. The thing that gets me is, how do we go from Palm Sunday, you know, Hosanna, blessed is Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, how does Jesus go from being at the zenith of his popularity to just seven days later, crucify him, crucify him? Like, how does that rise and fall happen so abruptly? And we start to see a little bit of how exactly that happens. By now, we're going to see in Mark 12, it's Wednesday. If you think about Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, now it's Wednesday. He's cleaned the temple out. The people, I mean, have all descended for the Passover feast in Jerusalem. There's people from all parts of the Roman Empire. They're there in Jerusalem. And they are looking for Messiah. Messianic fervor is running wild. They want somebody who can overthrow the Romans. Man, we were slaves in Egypt. We were slaves in Babylon. And we have been effectively slaves by the Greeks. Now we're enslaved by the Romans. And one day Messiah is going to set us free. And it's got to be Jesus. I mean, if you do them on paper, Jesus is the perfect Messiah candidate to do that, to set up this earthly kingdom. He can feed the 5,000. He can walk on water. He can raise the dead. It's going to be no problem for him to overthrow Caesars. What we talked about in almost every sermon in this series in the book of Mark, that Jesus just didn't seem to fit their messianic category, their messianic expectations. Say it this way. He was not the Messiah they were predicting, not the Messiah they wanted. Instead of overthrowing Rome, he seemed to be overthrowing the temple system. He's come in and cleaned out the temple. He said, you've made my father's house a house of thieves. He threw, all, threw out the money changers. Get out of here. My, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. Well, on the one hand, okay, the Pharisees were actually okay with that. Now, we come to this group of people we're about to meet called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a broad term for the people who ran the temple. And it was made up from different political parties. Imagine Congress. It's made up from lots of different uh, um, the two political parties, maybe an independent or two thrown in there. That, that's what the, the Sanhedrin, you had this, this group called the Pharisees, and you had the Sadducees, and you had the scribes, and together they worked as the Sanhedrin. Here's the thing. They weren't so much mad at Jesus coming in there. Like, why did the Pharisees turn on him? Think of it this way. The Pharisees actually wanted Messiah more than anybody. The Pharisees wanted a Jewish leader to revolt 
and like overthrow Rome. And man, they would be great. They just wanted a Jewish leader, Messiah, that they anointed and that they signed off on. And here was, here was their problem with Jesus and, and, and throwing out the money changers in the temple. The problem was not that he came in and purified the temple. They wanted that. They wanted, like, that's part of, Mes- that's part of what the Messiah is supposed to do. He's supposed to, like, purify the temple system. The problem is, he went into that temple without their permission to do it. Does that make sense? It's like he did it without their authority. If they had said, yeah, you're our guy. Go at it, Jesus. Clean out the temple. Go to work. They'd have been fine. But Jesus did not ask for their permission to go clean out the temple. He stormed in that place. You ready? As if he owned the place. And had the audacity to, in fact, say, it's my father's house. They weren't okay with that. Of course, they begin to resent him. The more he does this stuff, the more the people love him. He exposes the Pharisees' self-righteousness. They're worried about his theology. They're worried about his doctrine. And so they realize we've got to make this guy look foolish. We've, he's just, the more he does, the more he goes up and up in the eyes of the people. He gets higher and higher in the polls. And so what they realize is we need a public forum where we can debate Jesus publicly. And if we can stump him with a question and make him look foolish in front of all the people, then he'll go down a notch or two in the polls. And so that's their plan. And that's what happens in Mark 11 and 12. This questioning unfolds and they come to Jesus and they say, we got him. We got him with this one. We got him dead to rights. And so they say, Jesus, in front of all the people, we have a question for you. By whose authority do you do all these things, right? And they're going to bring him down a little bit. I mean, after all, I mean, he's from Nazareth, right? It's a joke. He never went to any seminary. He has no rep. We have credentials, Jesus. We have been trained by the best rabbis. Let me tell you, who trained you? Hmm? It's very important to the people that a man has good credentials. If he's going to lead, if he's going to be Messiah, go ahead. Where's your credentials? What authority? And they sit back all smug. (laughs) Got it. Right? And Jesus says, you know, I'd like to answer your question with with a question of my own. (laughs) Go ahead. Can't weasel out of this. He says, uh, you know that John the Baptist, huh? What do you think? See the real deal or not? Pharisees are like, we'll need a minute. <laughs> they get together and like, if we say he, if listen, listen, if we say John the Baptist, these people love John the Baptist. If we say John the Baptist was not the real deal, they're going to forget about Jesus. They're going to come after us. There's going to be a riot and they're going to kill us. So we can't say that John the Baptist was not legit. The people adore him. But if we acknowledge, if we concede that John the Baptist was the real deal, what did he say about Jesus? He said he's the Lamb of God. He said he is absolutely, his authority comes from John the Baptist, who everybody adores and loves. So if we say he's not the real deal, then we lose the respect of the people. If we say he is the real deal, then Jesus is going to look, then he's just going to say, well, there you go. Then why didn't you believe John the Baptist? So what do they say to Jesus? We have chosen not to answer your question. <laughs> pass. Right? To which Jesus says, oh, oh, well, then I won't answer your question. Pass. I didn't know we could pass. Okay, pass. Right? Well, they realize we've got to up our game with this guy. We're not dealing. This is not amateur hour. This guy's the real deal. So we need to come at him with our best shot. And it is, to me, it's a little, 
deceptive because the verse we're about to look at, it's such a small little passage. You could read right over it. It's interesting. Move on. But I think it's their A game. I think that everything rests on this question. And it's why I chose this particular question to be the turning point, the hinge upon which we go from Jesus He's the Messiah. His disciples acknowledge him in chapter 8, marching into Jerusalem. It's this verse that's the hinge that's going to get us next week to the spoiler alert, the crucifixion. I think this is the thing it hinges on. So they hatch this plan. It's nothing short of genius. The Sanhedrin, right? The Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, they all get together. Verse 13. Sorry, that was a huge buildup. And you've been sitting there with your Bible open so patiently wondering, what, what, what are we doing? Verse 13. Oh, I also have the verses up on screen. So if you want to follow along that way, there it is. Okay. And they sent to him, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. We're going to get back to that in just a second. But um, uh, uh, the Pharisees and Herodians hated each other. And you know the best way to get two groups of people who hate each other to unite is have them find a common enemy. Nothing unites like a common enemy, right? You can pull all kinds of strange bedfellows together and hear the Pharisees and Herodians who hate each other. The Pharisees need the Herodians. We'll get back to why in just a moment. Just note that fact. To trap him. Their, their goal is simple. They want to trap him in his talk. They're coming with their A game. Here they go. And they came to him and said, classic flattery. What teacher? All oh, the people are gathered around. Jerusalem is a powder keg looking for that one incendiary spark and they will overthrow Rome and whoo, here we go. Teacher, we know that you are true and you do not care about anyone's opinion. Right? In other words, Jesus, you keep it real. You're not swayed by peer pressure. You don't say the politically correct thing. No, no, you're not swayed by appearances. You truly teach the way of God. They're baiting him. Don't you see they're baiting him? All this, this uh, uh, flattery. And so they know, that they thought long and hard about it. Okay, they want him to tell, tell the, okay, Jesus, tell the truth. Don't say the politically correct thing in front of these Herodians. Because you know these Herodians are going to go tell Rome whatever you say. They're the agents of the state. They're sort of the tattletales we brought in to witness this. Herodians are the witnesses. Go ahead, don't back down. So the witnesses are here. Say what you feel, say what you think. And the battle lines were drawn. The battle lines were drawn. The most incendiary thing in uh, uh, early, right, right there in the ancient Near East, this is what the Jews would have, it, all the battle lines were, this was shots fired. It all came down to the topic of taxes. Taxes are no longer an incendiary issue in politics. <laughs> but at one time, <laughs> anywhere else in America, your property taxes was like a mortgage and a mansion and a pool. Here, it's wonderful. Anyway. Is it lawful? So they want to know, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And you could have heard the whole crowd go, oh, snap. You have to go to seminary. That's in the original Aramaic. You're just, it's translation issues. It's not here. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And this is what I love. They doubled down just like a news reporter in 2016 trying to nail down a particular political candidate. They, what they want to do is give them no wiggle room. You know, they're like, did you or did you not? Or yes or no. Are you for this policy or not? And they never do. They're always like, 
well, I just want to talk about some more talking points. No, 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 no. Yeah, and that's what they do. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Just so there's no misunderstanding, should we pay them or should we not? Hmm? Which is it? Now, what's the deal about taxes? Why is this the central pivotal issue? Taxes then were not like today in the sense that, look, we all may complain about taxes. We joke about them, but we pay them. It's the price you pay for living in a country that provides services. Fine. The Romans had a lot of taxes. Jews had to give taxes to the temples. There were Jewish taxes. The Romans imposed some of theirs too. There were taxes on roads and uh, streets and uh, uh, there was a, a grain tax and, and there was taxation for, uh, uh, there was even a property tax, a kind of business tax, a 1% income tax. There, uh, add to that some of the confusion. There was um, Greek coins floating around. Hebrew had little shekels floating around but there was this one tax and it was sort of sim- it was really symbolic but the one tax that they're talking about this tax to caesar was called the census tax or the head tax only caesar could mint a coin in gold or silver and this coin this one coin and i'll, I'll show you a picture of what it may have looked like in just a moment uh was uh, once a year they had to pay the equivalent of a day's wage pay this you know uh, uh, this uh, Caesar's coin, and it was a census tax. It was a way of Caesar. Th- this ha- this doesn't have anything to do with your with your uh, income. Okay, this doesn't have anything to do with the services I'm providing as Caesar. This is just Caesar flexing his muscle. I control you. I own you. You pay a tax because I say you do. And that's the one that oh they bristled under. And that's the one. And so. The messiahs, that would be their rallying cry. These, these wannabe messiahs that would raise up the way when they could get enough people together, the way you cross the line from like, hey, I'm just a big talker to this is the revolution. It's here was came down to taxes. That was the moment. That was the defining moment. And so if you incited the people to say, we will not pay this Caesar tax anymore Whoo, that was it. Shots fired. I mean, Jerusalem's a powder keg and you're just looking for one Messiah to light the match and be like, say it. They're like, say it, say it, please say it, say it, say we don't fight. You say we don't fight. it. Half the Pharisees were zealots anyway. This was a particular type of the political party that held dag. They called them the sicari. That's the Latin word for a little dagger under their cloak. They were ready right then and there for the revolution. You know what I mean? This is like uh, violent preppers. The, 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 they were ready at a moment's notice. If a Messiah were to bubble up and there was enough fervor, they're like, we're already armed and ready. We're good to go. Right. That was the thing. Taxes. Why the taxes so offended them. I told you one reason was that there it is. One reason was that, um, it offended them so much was because of what I just said. It was just really a, there's no reason for this tax. It's not an income tax. It's not tied to your income tax or anything like that. It's just a, you, you belong to Caesar. So pay up tax. And they were a theocracy. We're the people of Israel. We don't belong to Caesar. How dare you, you know, how dare a pagan of all people. The other thing, if you think about it, um, even worse. Uh, so I don't know, I don't know if you, you can see it here. This was from one from Tiberius. Uh, it, it, he meant himself and the Caesars didn't quite keep secular and sacred so separate. They believed that Caesar was not only like God's person to rule, but that he was a God. So imagine you're, you're a Jew and you're forced to pay, you're forced to pull out and pay this coin, which it's got, it's got, uh, you know, an image, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments. I don't know if, if you remember, uh, number one is no other gods before me. And, uh, number two is don't make a graven image here. The Jews are forced to carry around a portable idol everywhere they go. 
Made them sick to their stomach every time they looked at it. And as if all that isn't enough, uh, this is um, uh, this word here, the Pontifus Maximus. What's that about? Here's Caesar seated on a throne. He called the Senate his pontiffs, priests. He called the Senate his priests, and he was priest Maximus, highest priest, priest of priests. You're being told Caesar is your God. Caesar is your great high priest. Now here, hold his idol and offer it to him. Will you... You can see, right, why these messiahs would bubble up and they would say, we're not going to pay the tax anymore, right? Uh, Judas the Galilean, different obviously from Judas who walked with Jesus in 6 AD. In fact, Jesus as a little boy may have seen this. Judas the Galilean got the people rallied up. He was a would-be messiah, an insurrectionist. We're going to fight Rome. And he got 2,000. Rome came in and his, one of his rallying cries, he had like three mottos, his pl- campaign platform. One of them was no longer pay the census tax. Rome wants their taxes. Come and get it. Caesar came and got it. Crucified Judas the Galilean along with 2,000 of his followers. Lined him up on the whole road to Galilee so that everybody would walk past and see a writhing, tortured body crying out for mercy and being brutally murdered by Rome. Rome's message is simple. Anybody else not want to pay the tax? We got plenty more crosses. Anybody else want to be Messiah? Right? So the people, and they've they've grown up in this environment, right? And here they are. They know that's the threat. In fact, Jesus himself, you remember how on Good Friday, you know the story, Jesus was crucified between two thieves. Did that ever strike you? Like, doesn't that seem a little harsh? I mean, these guys were thieves. They're being up there crucified. Listen, they weren't up there for shoplifting. The, the whole idea of thieves, the Greek word, the le- lesties, they were brigands, they were robbers. The reason the King James, they, they, they call those brigands or thieves is because from Rome's perspective, they were up there because they incited the people not to pay the Caesar tax. So from Rome's perspective is you owe that and you've withheld it from Caesar. So you have robbed Caesar. You are a thief. See, they were an insurrectionist, a brigand up there. And that's what it means. And that's how this question is so genius. Let's go back to it. That's why this question is so genius. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? In other words, and and also notice, listen, the Herodians are here. They're so, oh, they got him. Such a good question. Such a good question. They've got all the people there, right? So Jesus has two choices. Go ahead. The people are begging him to say, no, we don't pay the tax. Let's go, right? Walk on water. Like, I mean, you know, they're ready. They're ready. And they're like, Jesus, just say the word, say the word, say the word. And the Pharisees know that. And the Pharisees are like, if you don't say the word, all the people are going to be like, ain't no Messiah. Not willing to fight for us. Not willing to take a stand. He probably did it because he was scared of the Herodians. Meanwhile, the Herodians are there. They do not want a rebellion. They do not want an insurrection, right? The Herodians got a good thing going. They have a good, they're in the palace of Herod. They're owned by the Romans. And so they're going, hey. We don't want Jesus to rebel. We don't want any rebellion. We want to keep everything. So as soon as they hear Jesus say, don't pay the tax, they'll immediately go get some Roman centurions. They'll come, they'll arrest Jesus. And that will be the end of Jesus. They got him pegged. And so they try to pin him on the horns of a dilemma. What do we do? Do we pay the taxes and keep the Herodians happy? Or do we not pay the taxes and keep these people happy? What is it, Jesus? Because either way, you lose. Got him pegged. They got him. They got him tricked. They got him trapped. He is pinned. You will either be completely discredited in the eyes of your adoring followers, or you will be convicted of sedition by Rome. And we know you're not going to be swayed by any peer pressure. <laughs> What's it going to be? They got him. 
We pay the taxes or not? Could have heard a pin drop. Got him tricked. Trapped. The trouble is, you can't, like, trick Jesus, uh, because he, like, made you. (laughs) So he looks at him and says the most, just the gentlest little question. I cannot explain to you how subtle his next move is. It almost looks like he's out of left field, like it has nothing to do with anything. If this were a chess board... It's like he's moving this innocuous little move, just taking a little pawn and moving it forward. Like, what? What? This is nothing. This is just a little thing. It's, not, it's just a little... Co- it's checkmate. As soon as he says this, it's completely over. It's game over. It's checkmate. But that, nobody sees it coming. So he says, all right. Huh. Pay taxes to Caesar or not. Knowing their hypocrisy. See? Knew him inside and out. He said to them, why you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. This. this is kind of out of nowhere. Yeah, bring me a denarius. Let me let me see the coin. Let me see the coin. And they're like, well, that, you know, what's the harm in that? And so they pull it out. And as soon as they do, as soon as they do, right? As soon as they pull that coin out, they brought one. It's game over. It's checkmate. It's over. Why? Because they proved that they were already complicit in Caesar's economy. Like, oh, you don't want anything to do with Rome? You don't want anything to do with Caesar? And yet when I said, bring me a denarius, you're like, yeah, here you go, here you go. You've already got his money. You like to walk on Caesar's roads, huh? You like to drink from the aqueducts that Caesar provides? You got no problem with that. But now you're all self-righteous about paying this tax? You've already, you've already, you've already proven that you are complicit in this. So he says, whose likeness and inscription is on that? Whose picture is on that? They're all like Caesar's. Exactly. Exactly. So if you're already complicit in his economy, if you're already walking on Caesar's roads, you like the protection that these centurions offer from the barbarians who want to invade. If you like, you know, the benefits Caesar provide, he says this. Really? Here it is. There's a coin. Caesar's picture. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. <laughs> to everyone under 30, did I use those correctly? Did I? I'm just... I mean, fun fact. He uses the word pay. So... They ask, should we give to Caesar? Uh, here's a little fun Greek fact. They ask, should we didomai to Caesar? And he says, you should apodidomai. In other words, they say, should we give to Caesar? He says, you should return to Caesar. You should give back. It's a little bit of a difference. He says, it's already Caesar's. Here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a ethical policy for you. Give to Caesar that which is Caesar and give to God. That which is God's. You owe Caesar a debt, so pay what you owe Caesar. That's all I ask. Just pay God what is God's. And they marveled at him. They'd never heard anyone talk like this before. Before we close, I'd like to make one aside. Okay, I'm going to make an aside, and I'm going to bring us back for the conclusion. So this marks the beginning of the aside. I will then mark the end of the aside, and then we will conclude. You ready? Here's the aside. Let's talk about how this verse relates to citizens of the United States of America in 2016. Okay? This begins the aside. This simple verse can keep us from two wrong extremes 
in thinking about how the church and the state should relate. On the one hand, there are those who think all... It might not be wise to amen, no matter how bad you want. Okay, I'm, I'm making a point that this is bad and sinful. There are those who believe that all forms of all government is bad, corrupt, and pagan. And thus we should resent and resist all forms of government, go so far as to not pay taxes or participate in government in any way. Hear me clearly. The Bible says that is wrong. And in fact, it says the opposite. Here's the way I see it. I owe a debt to the United States of America. You know why? Because I love interstates. Like I just traveled to Alabama and there were roads. Like even when I would go from state to state, there'd still be like a road. I like that the rule of law is generally respected or that I feel reasonably safe. I like the size and strength of our military power. The list could go on and on. But for all these benefits and more, I owe a debt to my country, and that's taxes. We may complain, but even bad government is preferable to no government and anarchy. Some people would say, yeah, but I don't like the way the government wastes my money. Bro. You like the way you waste your own money? Like, really, you're going to get self-righteous about them? You still give yourself money. You, you spend your money a lot worse than the federal government spends, that, spends your money. Okay? Like, come on. <clears throat> so, some of you. <laughs> the point is, no government is perfect. But I believe the Bible says you are in sin if you do not pay every dime you owe in taxes. Warren Wearsby tells a funny story. He lands where I do in terms of this uh, Romans 13, the idea that, that the, 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 the civil government is an institution of God and therefore is worthy of respect and paying our taxes. Uh, Paul wrote, if you owe taxes, you pay taxes. Warren Wearsby, uh, same interpretation as me, and uh, he says a religious zealot wrote him and was very angry. And he wrote that his interpretation of Romans 13 was wrong and that uh, I got your, you know, your, your message is all wrong and I, I don't pay my taxes because of these reasons and, and your interpretation is all wrong. Government is bad and everything. And Wiersbe wrote back, I received your letter, but I noticed you mailed it with a stamp through the United States Postal Service. And so I was not able to reply because your letter exploded in a burst of irony. He didn't say that, but I wish. The point is, if you're going to use the services this government provides, you owe them taxes. Paul says, pay what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. And Paul had a lot worse than we did. Paul is in, Paul's a Roman citizen who got to enjoy the services of Roman's prison system, right? Like at some point, he paid his taxes the whole time. At some point, he was beheaded by Rome. Do you think right before he's beheaded, as the, as the executioner pulls up that blade, Paul thinks, I paid for that blade. Shop, right? I mean, no, he was thinking about, I'm coming home to glory for me to live as Christ dies game. But I would have been thinking, you know, it's I, the irony. I bought that blade. <laughs> Hope I bought a sharp one, I guess. <clears throat> now, the so render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Got it? That should prevent one extreme. The other extreme 
is when a government oversteps its legitimate God-given authority and begins to demand things of Christians that they cannot in good conscience do. Then, if that day comes, and I hope it never does in the United States of America, but if that day were to come, when the Constitution is changed or thrown out, and the state were to come and tell me, look, Tom, if you preach the Bible, it's hate speech, and thus it's outlawed. So you can preach the Bible, but you must only preach the state's interpretation of the Bible. Then on that day, hear me clearly, we must render to God that which is God's. And I will continue to preach and face whatever consequences there are. And I pray that city on a hill will join me in prison or whatever. (laughs) We will have no trouble getting a nursery worker at that point. I mean, they're all just, they're not going anywhere. I mean, they're just... You ever wonder if Paul looked at Silas in jail going, you know, our church is not seeker friendly. Because <laughs> it's a church. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar and render to God's that which is God's. I will, if that day comes, I should have pointed out, I will, if the consequences are there to go to jail, but all the while I'll pay taxes. You see what I'm saying? So one extreme is the sort of, you know, everything's wrong and bad about the government. We resist it, resent it. We don't pay taxes. The other extreme, and I'm not saying that either of you would ever fall on these extremes, but the other would be that we owe total allegiance to the state. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, render to God the things that are God's. Now, that ends the aside. Now we conclude the message. Why? The conclusion is why. And this to me is my favorite part. <clears throat> why? Why render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God's the things that are God's? It's so simple. He asked them this question in verse 16. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, the old NIV and several other translations translate the word likeness. It goes back to Genesis. They translate this word image. It means the same thing. Whose image is on this coin? So he holds up. It all comes down to the concept of image. He holds up this coin and he tells them, okay, whose image is that? And they're like, is this like, are you seriously asking us this? Jesus this is such a simple question. That's Caesar's. So he says, okay, <clears throat> you see what he's saying? These coins were made in the image of Caesar. And if something was made in the image of Caesar, it quite naturally belongs to Caesar. But then he looks at the people. He says, but you, you weren't made in the image of Caesar, were you? No. How were you made? You were made in the image of God. You bear his image and his inscription over you, his word, his judgment on your life is the one that matters. So since you were made in the image of God, you belong to God. You belong to him. So give to Caesar his money. Caesar minted these coins. He wants his money back. Who cares? God made your life. You belong to him. So give Caesar his coin back. You give God what belongs to God. Well, what belongs to God? Oh, that would be everything. Everything? Your life, your family belongs to God. Your plans, your dreams, your everything. Look at it this way. When it comes, this is going to make your pride bristle. It makes my pride bristle. When it comes to human interactions, human on human interactions, there's this thing called human rights. 
You have to treat this person with some human rights. They have to treat you with some human rights. Watch this. When it comes to human to God interactions, you have no rights. Let me repeat that just to double down. When it comes to human God interactions, you have no rights. Now, if you're like me, your pride bristles at that. What do you mean I have no rights before God? Who does God think he is? Oh, I see your point. God of the universe, maker of all things. Yeah, if he wants your life, he takes it right now. Oh, you think you control your life? You're two handfuls of mist. What about, what about, uh, 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 I mean, surely like, 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 but I have a right to exist. Bible says in him, we live and move and have our being. It means right now, if he wanted to, he could say your molecules would just float apart. Your molecules would float apart. Now, what, what, what leverage do you have against that? So I say all that to say, if you don't pay Caesar by withholding taxes, I mean, doesn't that right? He, God owns me. He owns you. Doesn't don't your pride bristle at that thought? Now, look, if you don't pay Caesar by withholding taxes, uh, you get punished. Right? I mean, that was pretty clear. We just saw that Judas the Galilean and all the 2,000 followers being crucified. So if you rob Caesar, you're punished. <clears throat> so render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But let's think about this for a second. What if we haven't rendered to God that which is God's? What if you're here and maybe you've paid your taxes and you're good with Caesar, but how are you in the eyes of God? Have you rendered to God the things that are God's? Have you given total obedience to God? Let me ask it this way. Have you ever robbed God by withholding your obedience? Have you ever been selfish instead of selfless? Have you ever held others to a higher standard but allowed yourself lots of justifications and excuses? If you have, you've sinned. You've failed to give God what is rightfully God's. That is a massive debt you can never repay. You can hire a lawyer to get between you and the IRS, but who's going to get between you and God? And judgment is coming. It's a lot worse than what Caesar can dole out. For those who have not rendered to God that which is God's. But here's the hope. But God, out of his infinite mercy, out of his great grace, listen to me carefully. God has made a way for rebel sinners who owe this great debt to God to be saved. How? Two days after Jesus told this story and did this... uh, answer that he was the spotless lamb of God and he did what no one's ever been able to do because you may have said yeah Tom I've sinned but who hasn't well there's one who among us has ever rendered fully to God the things that are God's who rendered a life of perfect obedience it was none other than the spotless lamb of God Jesus and when he stretched out his arms and died on that cross watch watch carefully his perfect obedience was rendered to God perfectly and freely offered to all who believe. In other words, the Bible term for this is justification. You can be given Christ's obedience before God. His record of perfect obedience can be swapped for yours. When I talk to young people, I talk about GPA and transcript, right? How's your GPA? Is it 4.0? Did you nail it? Have you got everything right? Right? And I talk about that. And of course, the analogy always breaks down for the two valedictorians. They're like, yes, go on. I am perfectly righteous. But anyway, you got this perfect? You got all A's? You got it? Yeah? No, I don't. And what if you couldn't get into that school you wanted or that job, whatever? Imagine your transcript could be swapped with the perfect transcript of Jesus Christ. You're going to stand before God and he's going to say, you rendered to God perfect obedience. Say, whoa, 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 when did I do that? Christ on the cross did that. And your, his record stands for yours. That's justified. God makes guilty sinners innocent in his sight 
by the blood of Jesus. His payment on the cross was credited to us. Do you understand uh, the concept of credit? Uh, so there's a guy in your church who's so deep in debt to a creditor that there's no hope, there's no way out. He comes to the church. The church, out of love, out of grace, city on a hill, comes around. They find the address of the creditor. They find all the details, the exact amount. And city on a hill, out of your tithes and offerings, cuts a check to the creditor and puts this man's account number on it. The creditor gets it. It's like, I don't know who the city on a hill is, but that's got your account number. So the man gets a letter that says, your account's been paid in full. That's the idea. That someone else stood good for this person's debt. Now, it's not a perfect analogy because no group of people could ever cover the debt we owe God. But Jesus, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, could and did. He owed, excuse me, we owed a debt that we could never pay. And so he paid a debt that he did not owe for us and our salvation. He rendered for us unto God so that we might walk in his freedom. And in response, offer our lives as rendered unto God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone in this room tonight, this morning, that is not... That is not yet a believer. They've not yet transferred their trust and made you the Lord and Savior of their life. And God, I pray for anyone this morning that, that they're sitting here and that they're convicted of sin. They know that their perfect, that their record is not perfect and they could not stand before a holy God. And they're looking for hope and they're crying out. I pray, God, that you would speak so clearly to them and they would open their hearts to you in this moment and receive you as Lord and Savior. That they would not be too too bold, you know, they wouldn't be too, uh, too, too prideful to go and receive some prayer after this service. Get right with you today. And Father, I pray for those who are believers. Maybe there's some way in which they've not been rendering to you that which is rightfully yours. Some sin, some habit, something they're holding on to. It doesn't belong to you. I pray that today they would render to you that which is yours. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being that perfect obedience for anyone walking in guilt and condemnation. I pray they would look to Calvary's cross and remember what you say about us. Remember your inscription over our life. For anyone who's beaten up and discouraged, that they would put one foot in front of the other, trusting in you and leaning even more deeply in who you are as Messiah. No one can stop you. No Pharisee can trap you. No scheme of man. That you came and you died on your own terms. You weren't taken off by anyone else. Thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. And as we turn our attention to the Lord's table, this great visual reminder, these elements, I pray that it would be for every Christian just that. A remembrance, a calling, an intentional calling to the forefront of our minds what you did for us directing our heart, forcing our heart, saying, look at this, look at this, ponder this. A sinless, spotless Lamb of God died for me, died for my brothers and sisters in here, and rose again on the third day to invite us to be sons and daughters of God. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.